Stop it! Don't open that door! Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. We are a video game podcast, in case you've made it through 20 episodes and did not know that. Thought we'd just throw it out there, but we do think we are a little bit of a different kind of video game podcast. One of us, that guy over there, he's Caleb J. Ross. He's an author. He's a cartoonist. He's a video game lover. And I am a collector, recovering game store owner, attorney, and business guy. And we like to dive into the business, economics, and psychology of video gaming. Although we do do some of the fun stuff as well, like talk about what we're playing, what we've picked up. Caleb, happy Memorial Day to you, sir. Yes. I want to wish you and everybody out there a, a safe and happy Memorial Day. Do you have any plans? No, uh, not at all. In fact, I kind of forgot it was Memorial Day, which seems sort of antithetical to the whole point. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I no, but in in Kansas it'll be it'll be deathly hot, probably at least for me. I'm 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 a guy who doesn't like to uh, sweat. Mm. I don't like I don't like that sort of reminder that I'm actually still alive, kind of thing, you know. So I like to sequester myself into as cold dark room as possible um and play video games if i can yeah 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 what about you i am planning on going up to boston with some friends and viewing a bunch of historical stuff maybe do salem and view like the witch trial museum go down the on the freedom trail in boston do a bunch of uh america stuff nice are you gonna try to uh point get out some uh real life fallout 4 sites Ooh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, I like I like where your head's at. What you should do, uh, take a video of of bring along a video recording of someone you know going through the Freedom Trail in, in Fallout Four, and see if you can sort of map that exact same trail. See how much of what you're seeing in Fallout Four stands back in this past days. Uh, well, you know, I'm going with a couple of my regu- relatively normal female friends, and if I can get them on board with that, sounds like a good <laughs> idea. Wait, wait. You said relatively normal, and then you also said they weren't going to be a fan of this stuff. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> uh, am I not normal? Is that what you're saying? Well, I didn't say it. Uh, yeah, no, it's fine. Cool. cool. I'll just, I'll just drink my coffee and and refuse to sweat, just yeah. like a normal person. That's a good plan. That's a good plan. <laughs> Turn up your air and uh, plug in your USB coffee mug. Yeah, thank you. Hey, hey, you mentioned in the intro that I was a cartoonist. Um, and I want to know how much you know about me. Well, in our last episode, did I really mention you something? Were, in the last you were episode? talking about <laughs> drawing some sort of cartoon, and I said, "From yeah. now on, I'm going to introduce you as an author <laughs> and cartoonist." <laughs> well, I'm like the P two of this, where I don't pay any attention to the actual media output that we make. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. So I uh... clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember lots of other things that we talked about. Uh, I, I remember um, all the wonderful uh, collecting and cleaning tips that you've offered in the past, which mm-hmm. um, I don't know that we... Uh, yes, we do have one of those this We time, do, we so. do. We're gonna, we're gonna, I listen sometimes. Yeah. You, well, I suppose I should give a rundown for, for folks before we get too far into this and lose them all about what we've got <laughs> to cover here this episode. 
we're going to get into, obviously, what we've been playing and what we've picked up. We're going to do our collector's tips segment, which we skipped last time. It's back from the grave like zombie Jesus. This time it's going to be talking about collection management and tracking. Then we're going to get into our current events. We have a lot of Nintendo stuff to go through here today. Uh, We're going to talk about Switch Online. We're going to talk about Switch charging stands. We're going to talk about Nintendo getting sued again. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Electronic Arts and uh, go into their earnings call and uh, some tips that we're pulling out of their earnings season. And then, of course, we're going to bid a early farewell to physical games on the PlayStation Vita. We are going to talk about Microsoft doing a little uh, ADA gaming action. And then in our main event, we're going to talk about <gasps> Gasp. We're going to talk about all digital content. <sighs> this Wait a minute. This, this can't be Masters of Unlocking. We don't do that sort of thing. Yeah, we only release our podcast on vinyl. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Yeah. And you have to have a jean jacket and a mustache in order to listen to this podcast. <laughs> you have to look like you belong in an Apple commercial in order mm. to uh, access our content, I believe. Just a black silhouette. Are yeah. those still the Apple commercials? Well, I, I keep seeing this one on Twitter of this douchebag looking guy in a laundromat and he's like taking a fancy photo of himself that turns the background all black and makes him look like he's it's the stage photo or whatever but he's he he looks like the most apple person i've ever seen (laughs) and and what's funny is you have an apple phone i mean you use an apple phone right i do i do yeah yeah so you're allowed to say this stuff right right i'm not i'm not just an apple hater i'm just a Per people in you're Apple. also a member yeah yeah i'm yeah. just a i'm just a hipster hater got it i understand yeah i understand yeah yeah that makes sense so now that we've bored our audience completely <laughs> to death <laughs> caleb what have you been playing uh i have been playing um night in the woods uh which is a game that should tick all of the boxes that make for a great caleb j ross game uh Fun art style, sort of walking, uh, not difficult at all, very easy kind of game, narrative driven, interesting, quirky, funny, uh, but I'm just not digging it. Uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know. There's something about it that's not grabbing me, but um, it's not, it's not one of those games that I abhorrently hate in the way that would cause me to question everyone's mental capacity who does like the game. Uh, Those of you out there who like the game, I love the fact that you love it genuinely, but I just can't do it. Um, and I don't know why, uh, I, I haven't finished the game yet. I probably will finish it cause I think it's pr- fairly short. Um, but I, it's just not doing it for me. So, but I have been playing another game, uh, a way out, which I think a few episodes ago, I talked about that. I was going to be playing this with a friend of mine, um, here locally. Uh, and it is a super duper amount of fun. Um, we've played two sessions so far. We still have a third to sort of round out the experience. I believe, I think it's like a seven hour ish game or so. Um, and it's really a lot of fun. Like it's, it's, it's atrocious writing. It's terrible writing, terrible voice acting, really, um, to the level that I'm not sure if it's intentionally supposed to be that way or not. I can't (laughs) really tell. Uh, this is the one that's entirely, it's only available to play in a co-op environment, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think from a games mechanic standpoint, it, it does a lot of cool things. I mean, it really is cool. It's a little bit uh, quick time event heavy or a little bit button prompty heavy, I should say, and that it doesn't really let you just 
learn the buttons and then go on. It's every time this button comes into play, you're prompted to push the button. So you can't really explore without this HUD telling you what to do. That's a little bit of annoying, but at the same time, I also think it's pretty helpful because uh, the game knows that if you're sitting down with a friend on a couch, you're probably going to be talking about bullshit anyway. You're probably just going to be chatting, drinking, doing whatever, so you're not really going to be entirely invested in the game. So it kind of knows that and, 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 and helps you through the game a little bit more than I would like, but I get it. I understand it. Um, and mechanically speaking, it does use the whole uh, teamwork mentality or it, it takes it to levels that I wasn't really anticipating and it does sort of capitalize upon it a lot. Um, it's not just sort of a one trick pony where you're just um, every single, you know, every single obstacle requires the two of you to push this button at the same time. It's not just that there's a lot of sort of nuance to it. Um, so I definitely recommend it. It's only a $30 game and uh, absolutely worthwhile. I'd say if you have someone locally to, to kind of play that with you, but it's been fun. Nice. I'm always looking for local co-op multiplayer games that's really the only type of multiplayer i play and i find that since the advent of you know xbox live and and console gaming going online most multiplayer games just eschew the local component entirely um whenever i have friends over we walk into the game library and start pulling out video games and looking at the back to see oh is this two player local no nope. <laughs> is this two player local no nope. is this two player local no nope. it it's kind of astounding how few of them there are yeah and i wonder we'll get to this probably during the uh next collector's tip management section but um, I would wonder if, and I'm voicing it now, just so you can remind me to ask it if I don't, but uh, if you can actually filter games by not only just multiplayer, but multiplayer local um, in the tool in the tool that you use. So that'd be interesting to know. Definitely. We will, yeah. we might just cover that. Look at that. Yeah. Um, so uh, what other games have I been playing? Um, what A game I haven't been playing, and I kind of wanted to bring this up with you, is uh, I, long ago, uh, beginning of the year, I'd say, you and I both decided that one of our gaming goals was going to be to play the Bioshock trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're in May. Uh, so I trust that uh, you finished at least the first one um, and probably part of the second one. Is that, is that accurate? I am. Uh, it's about, it's close. It's close. Okay, I'm about, good. I'm about halfway through the first one. Um, and I was exactly about halfway <laughs> through the first one when we made this pact. Um <laughs> So, you know, progress is, is, is being made, um, slowly, slowly. Yes. Same here. Uh, I haven't, I haven't played anymore either. Uh, are you going to go back and start from the very beginning when, and if you do actually get to, uh, trying to push through on this goal? No, I'll probably pick up where, where I was. It wasn't actually, it was really, it was only, it was shortly, it was late last year that I played it that I started mm-hmm. this, this playthrough. So I, it's still pretty fresh in my mind. And, and I remember kind of how, where I'm at. I'm not too, um, it's not too long ago that I've completely forgotten what's going on. And, and it is sort of linear. So it's not one of those things where I'm going to have to go back and like, like I, if I was going back and picking up a game of fallout or, uh, elder scrolls, I would, definitely have to start over because mm-hmm. i wouldn't have any clue what the hell was going on yeah well not me i'll start over because i forget everything <laughs> that's just how it works um and have you been uh so 
have you been playing anything though for real lately or uh maybe even have you picked up anything that you're uh, looking forward to playing yeah so actually i finally am able to answer yes to have you been playing anything <laughs> uh, i feel like it's been literally months since i played anything um you know i've it, work has been kind of brutal and just uh, so much stuff going on in the weekends that my game gaming life has not been uh extended too much far, too far beyond the this podcast over the last couple of months but i started i finally busted open the new god of war and i'm hoping to play through that i have some time off this weekend with no plans so i'm hoping to maybe even finish it up this weekend and burn through it i've heard it's not a it's not a real long game um so, you know maybe 10 hours or so so i'm i'm hoping i can crank that out nice have you started it yes Yes, yes you have. So yep. so far as good as everyone says. Yes. Uh, oh, and man. beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um and you really do get a it does a good job of conveying a sense of scope, you know, in with the the camera and just the uh the art direction. Not too far into it, but nice. Nice. That's when I almost thought of of buying like day 1, but ah, god, I just realized I I'm I'm doing my best to hold myself accountable to these arbitrary stupid rules that I put in place and never, ever, ever, ever follow up on as frequent listeners of the podcast will know. I always end up buying stuff when I said I wasn't going to, but that's one that I, I almost did. And, and I just backed away, but we'll do it someday. I'm sure there'll be a game of the year edition for it with all of the DLC and, and goodies that'll come out Mm -hmm. down the road. and, And you can always get that and have the, the complete experience, I'm sure. I can't wait. I can't mm, wait. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, have you picked anything up? Speaking of pickups, uh, chlamydia. Mm, that's a good one. And, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard really good things. I heard it's it's making a comeback. Um, <laughs> yep. I know it was a. It's sort of a retro thing. It was mm-hmm. uh, popular a while back, and uh, hipsters are bringing it back. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> uh, the sequel. Uh, what, what would be the sequel to Chlamydia? Does it evolve into something? I'm trying to think. Like, uh, uh, it's it's Chlamydia two. Uh, broken pustules. <laughs> uh, is that a? I don't know what Chlamydia looks like. To be honest, is it is it a scabby sore thing? I think it's a Chlamydia two uh, groinular boogaloo. <laughs> Oh, I wish groinular bugaloo was like a medical term. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I well, I've picked up uh, a couple things that, that might sort of uh, steer the conversation in a bit of a different direction. But I, I will bring them up because I, I have a genuine question. I'm genuinely interested in something. So I one of the weird things I do collect. So listeners of the podcast will know I don't collect video games. But I do have a history of collecting things, um, and one of the things that I've I've been collecting for the past uh, I don't know about a year or so are like video game themed coins, and I don't know uh, why to be honest. Like the, I think it's just because coins of the, in of themselves are self contained; they're a thing you can put a lot of them in a small package, and therefore you can sort of accumulate them without it becoming a hindrance. Is probably partially part of it, but then uh, video game themed coins is sort of an even further niche of that. Um, and I didn't really even know video game themed coins existed until about a year ago or so. So I've been sort of accumulating them and I got a few new ones. I won't bore anybody with, with what they are or anything like that. But the reason I bring it up is because I wanted to ask you, Mr. VG Collectaholic, um, I, I don't know that I've ever known whether or not you focus just on video game collecting or if you're open to collecting just video game themed things um, or how you 
sort of walk that line in your head? Um, yeah, I do. I primarily focus on games, but I do collect quite a bit of the video game ephemera as well. Uh, I have a pretty good sized collection of strategy guides and art books. Um, just, I, I like the, I'm a, I, I have a big book collection. I'm a, uh, my, as I've mentioned before, my mom was a librarian. So books have always been a big part of my life. I have, my bedroom is kind of looks like a library. It's just got bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves. And so I, I've brought that into the game room as well. And I just have one, you know, one full size bookshelf that's just filled with with art books and, and things like uh, Pat the NES Punk's book and um, some game history type stuff. I don't have any of the boss fight books or anything like that. but And then I do collect a lot of like pre-order bonuses and soundtrack mm. CDs and posters. And uh, I have a couple of like promotional standees and things like that that just litter the, the game room and kind of take up space (laughs) (laughs) but i think i think most of the stuff that that i've collected is has has a a tie-in to a game like the the mario odyssey coin or the mario galaxy coin or uh you know a lot of the pre-order type bonuses or launch edition bonuses things like that this is probably most of what my uh ephemera tends to be yeah, that makes sense. So you wouldn't uh, accumulate plushies, for example. No, no, I do have I do have some plushies. Just they tend to be the ones that came with like the the NIS America or Atlas um, launch editions or pre orders, things like that. Do you ever have to like find yourself fighting against starting to collect things like that, or is it pretty easy for you just to say nope, games and and whatever ephemera happens to come along with that particular game? No, it's it's been pretty easy to stay away from that. Like I never got into the amiibo thing. I never got into um, collecting like statues or anything like that. And I think some of that is just a consciousness of space. And I, I've even started to skip buying for a while. For most of the last couple of generations, I've been collecting limited editions and collector's editions and things like that. And I've started skipping out on those um, much more than I actually thought I would uh, just again, because of space. And I tend to think just re reassessing my, my collecting Uh, the last, probably I would say since grad school, I had really been focusing on collecting more of the current gen stuff. So last in when PS3 was out, I was buying, I have a ton of PS3 games. And then when PS4 and Vita came out and I picked up a bunch of those, I completed the Wii U set, things like that. And now I've really been shifting focus more to the older stuff and trying to get back to kind of my, my retro collecting roots and some of that has just been assessing and taking a look at the costs involved. You know, I've, I've been spending way too much cash on the modern stuff. And a big part of that is buying a play version of something and then a collector's edition. Mm, and, yeah. and I mean, I just see the quantities of, of collector's editions of these things that gets made. And these are things that are just, they're not going to have any value down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think, um, I think that's kind of helped me not, go down that road uh, and try to stick to to games. The The closest I've come was you know, more of the books, um, mm-hmm. art books, strategy guides, things like that. Things that can be uh, 
things that are aesthetically pleasing when grouped together on a shelf is what I'm hearing. Uh, <laughs> definitely sort of, you know, uh, yeah. So maybe, yeah. maybe there's probably something to that. So There's a theme and there's probably something psychological that that says about my need to organize things and categorize things and um, put things, you know, Arrange things in a non-chaotic way. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to alphabetize statues. It is. It really yeah. is. And <laughs> and you know, line them all up real nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe there's a market though for uh, a, a line of statues that specifically fit together, almost like Tetris pieces, but Ooh. not quite that perfectly. So it's like you know, you have a statue of you know maybe Chun Li doing her upside down uh, 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 her, her, uh, helicopter kick thing. But then also like Guile maybe like ducking under it and doing his sonic boom. And they all like are purposefully designed so that they can sort of from a distance look like a solid wall. But you get closer and you realize they're sort of intricately pieced together. <laughs> that could be fun. It's some sort of some sort of pop art. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, that kind of reminds me. Of, I, one of the things I've also been big into collecting and and less so since I moved out east and gotten rid of most of it was gaming mags. And you know the for a while there, all of the Nintendo powers. When you line them up, they they made each year made a, its own picture with the spines all lined up together. So it would basically create like a collage uh, when you looked at it from the side. Um, and there, there were the more. There were a couple other magazines that did that too. I don't remember which ones they were though. Yeah, it's weird when you get to the psychology of collecting. There's a lot of. Uh, I would probably look at it as almost a nefarious thing, but it's also just a marketing thing. And that's, uh, you know, you're less likely to stop your subscription if your subscription ends in the middle of that picture, right? Even though it's something so tiny and weird, like you're just not going to stop your subscription because of it. Um, Boss Fight books and and other, you know, series books put numbers on the spines, of course. You know, you're less likely to, you don't want to interrupt that number. Yeah. Um, Part of me wondered... You look at like uh, limited run games yeah, or yeah. special reserve games or all these limited companies, even the PlayAsia stuff with East Asia Soft, all of those are numbered uh, in terms of their edition, not just their individual numbering, but their edition. And, and that's the same sort of thing. People um, get OCD about it and want to complete the set and have, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, have all of that uh, nicely organized and nicely stored in a row. Yep. Yep. Makes me wonder why limited run games didn't have larger numbers on their spine because they're relatively small. And I think if you had a larger number sort of broadcasting that, hey, you're missing this one. Um, it's going to get I guess they don't really make limited run games wouldn't make any money in the aftermarket anyway, because all of their games sell out instantly. So maybe that's why they don't really have a monetary incentive to have someone look and see a blank spot and think, oh, I better get that filled. Well, I can't go to limited run games to do that. I've got to go to the, you know, eBay or they well, just didn't well, think about it. But I think it does. I think it's probably the the latter that they didn't think about it, and now it's sort of they've got their thing. Yeah. But it would, I think, generate a more more longevity to their customer base. Um, one of the one of the things that I think can really that might risk limited run games longevity is uh, they have been primarily fueled by Switch or by Vita collectors. And with the Vita being phased out, and we, this was one of our current event topics, but it's relatively short, so we can just pull it up here because it kind of fits. Yeah. Um, but the Sony has announced that they're they're stopping 
Vita production. So the Vita cart production is no longer going to continue in the U.S. and Europe um, by the end of their fiscal year 2018, which is the end of March 2019. So they've actually announced that any orders for games have to be placed with them by, I think, February of 2019. And after that, it's uh, there will be no more games released in the West. Now, there will they are not closing the physical Vita cart production in China or Japan. So the Asian region will continue to see Vita games come out. Um, but here in the West, it's it's all done. And so that means that while PlayAsia can still be releasing their East Asia Soft exclusive line, and I'm sure they'll probably sort of pick up the slack that... Um, step in to fill that gap and expand that limited line with the stuff that used to be limited run games i'm wondering if the the switch over to the nintendo switch for limited run games is enough to fill that gap i don't think they've their their ps4 line has never been their most popular line uh those are the ones that you can typically show up you know 10, 15 minutes after a, a sale opens, if it, as long as it's not something crazy like you know, Night Night Trap or something that's gotten a lot of press, and still find the PS4 version in stock when the Vita one is gone in, you know, 30 seconds. Yep, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's I feel like the Switch is popular enough that people are going to be hungry for physical Switch games all always, uh, but, you know... I don't know. I mean, the Switch has such a robust indie community already, and Limited Run thrives off of bringing indie and digital-only games to physical, obviously. So I wonder if just seeing if people seeing Switch as the indie games console is going to either help or hinder uh, physical Switch cart sales. I mean, if people are already used to it being the indie source and they're comfortable downloading digital-only and leaving it at that, then that's great. Um, but at the same time. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. But well, and I, th- I think with with the Vita, limited run games was really the only publisher make releasing stuff on Vita. So there was a real there. The Vita has a pretty passionate community, and if people were wanting to buy physical games for the Vita, you were almost you were almost forced to just go to limited run games as your source. And, I mean, every once in a while you'd get a game from NIS America that dropped or Atlas that dropped. But by and large, it was it was pretty much limited run and nothing. Whereas with the Switch, you do have... it. Not only is it a big... It not only does it have a strong indie developer presence, but it also has... A lot of those games are being released physically. You know, you have games from um, folks like... Um, Soidesco releasing stuff on on Switch or um, what are some of the other you know, small ones like uh, the the Wonder Boy guys that released on Switch? Mm, yeah, or the uh, the I I didn't it was I am eight bit that did uh, um, Retro Renegade or whatever it's called. Oh yeah, V Blank. Yeah, yeah, V Blank. Yes. Yep, yep. Um, I think what something you said though almost makes me think. Uh, makes me question just how popular Vita games were uh, from Limited Run. So you mentioned that really Limited Run was one of the only consistently reliable places to get Vita games. And I'm wondering if that alone is why games were bought up so quickly on uh, on Limited Run games. I mean, at the end of the day, Limited Run sells out of every, every, every uh, game that they ever produced. I mean, it's not as though... 
um, you know, that they're hurting to actually sell the titles. Even if it does take 15 more minutes, they'll still always sell out. And so I wonder if Vita games were available elsewhere, would it actually have been such a draw for, for collectors or for Vita owners? Um, and that perhaps maybe, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing the numbers too. I mean, I don't know if you have access to numbers, or if you're privy to those about like how much more popular Vita games were than uh, PlayStation 4. Because the PlayStation 4 just has such a huge install base, you know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the when it's all said and done here by the time the physical vita games are done being released in the west it's entirely possible that there are half as many games for the vita released by limited run than there were by all other publishers combined in physical form i think there's something like 200 and change physical games for the vita that aren't from limited run games um, I'm trying to remember in my mind because I don't have my collector app open at the moment, but I think they're at like you know sixty for the Vita from from limited run games and and Doug tweeted out and in response to the news from Sony that they were wrapping up Vita Vita cart production, he said that for the the rest of the year and and until the close they have I think thirty more Vita games to release that are all in the pipeline and approved and and um, you know scheduled to be coming out before the carts end. So you could there could conceivably be a hundred Vita games for limited run and you know, two hundred games from everybody else. It's which is somewhat astounding and kind yeah. of an, kind of a unique anomaly. That is crazy. Crazy pants. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, we jumped way ahead. Where should yeah, we go now? Let's let's uh we we mentioned the my collector and database. Yes. Let's let's jump into that quick. I don't think it'll take too long, but uh we'll get the collector tips out and uh then we can get back to the news. I like it. All right. So, this episodes collector tips we are talking about collection management and collection tracking we've discussed before um, sticker removal and marker removal and more of sort of the physical upkeep of collecting but this time it's more of the um, the mental upkeep of collecting and trying to remember what I have trying to remember what I need so that I don't uh, you know constantly keep buying the the same stuff that I've already got and I know there are folks that use spreadsheets for this or apps that track you know exclusively Nintendo carts or Super Nintendo carts um, and uh, I've I've dabbled in all of that I, I used to use spreadsheets uh, you know probably 10 15 years probably 15 years ago uh, before I before I stumbled upon this app and when I started getting out of spreadsheets and looking for sort of a more cross-platform solution and I think this was actually um, when I've got my first iPhone. So it was the, the second or the, the 3g or whatever that was the, like the first, maybe the second generation of iPhone. Um, I was looking for something that was, was, would sync across my computer, across my iPhone, across a tablet, 
um, so that no matter where I was and no matter what I had with me, I could always access my collection and um, know what I needed and what I already have and know what condition my stuff was in. So if I saw something that might have been an upgrade, I could look at my, my phone and just say, oh, yeah, I have it and it's in X condition. Um, and at the time, there weren't the slew of apps that there are now. Now you can you, you can go to the iTunes store and see just a plethora of collection, video game collecting stuff. Because, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Apple hipster guy loves the video games nowadays. <laughs> so the, the software that I use is called Collectors, Game Collectors. And that's Collectors with a Z because, you know... That's awesome. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, And it's a collection suite that they actually started out doing um, a movie collection software and then a book collection software and and, um, then eventually got into video games. And I've been using them for probably 10 years now or so. and it, it, they really have developed out. They, they keep evolving and growing, and they've really developed a, a, a complete ecosystem for uh, game collecting. So I primarily use their desktop software. So it's actually just, you know, you buy the software. I think the initial price is 50 bucks, and then that comes with one year of updates. And then you can subscribe, if you want, to their update plan, which includes full tech support and, and then every single package. It's almost like a software as a service sort of structure. Uh, And that's 25 bucks a year. But then every Black Friday, they have like a 50% off for existing customers. So I'll buy, you know, four, five, six years at a time and and really collapse the the costs down that way. Um, But the the desktop software is really full function. It's really customizable. Um, Dean Lasagna at Round 2 Gaming, I introduced him to this software, and he loved it so much he actually went and did a big in-depth review on his website. Uh, and I, you can find his his review uh, at, at Cartridge Club. I think he posted a video of it on YouTube, uh, but check out cartridgeclub.org and you can find uh, Dean's review of this software where he kind of walks through the, the actual desktop software. Um, but the thing that I really like about it is it syncs to a couple of different spots. It syncs to their website at you know, collectors.com so that you can you can share your collection, you can share your want list and you know post it to forums to send people there if you're talking trade on you know Twitter or Instagram or whatever. It's just easy to say, oh yeah, here's my want list. You can go here and just give them a link rather than uh, sending them a file or typing it all out or whatever um and then it also syncs to their mobile app so they have a ios and android app called clz games which is basically just the desktop software in a mobile version it's a little bit it's a little bit dumbed down so you could actually just buy the mobile app i think it's 15 bucks and you can actually just scan um, scan your games if you have complete in box scan the barcode and add it to your collection on the phone itself Um, but that doesn't have a lot of the more customizability of fields and and the depth of of information that the actual desktop software has hmm. 
Yeah, I'm looking at that. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, uh, mobile version right now, and it seems like for someone in my my position, where I just kind of want to keep a log of the games I'm playing and stuff like that, and and have not collecting but have, um, it could be pretty suitable for that. So it seems like they're trying to sort of address each different tier of of video game uh, collectors. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And they have a a really robust database. The one thing that they don't do is they don't have, say, you can't say, oh, I'm collecting the Nintendo. And it has just give me a list of all of the Nintendo games for the North America. And then it's like a checklist. I think that's something that I would like to see them have because when I go through and I'm I'm working on a complete set, I actually have to, you know, grab a list online somewhere and then add all, you know, tight either you can search for games by either name or scan them a barcode or or whatever, but I actually have to go through and add them all to the database, my own personal database individually oh, as like games I want sort of thing. Right, right. So it doesn't it, it it's not super convenient in that aspect but the customizability for somebody who's especially a complete collector uh you know collecting making wanting to make sure their copy of you know final fantasy for the nes has the box and the manual and the poster that's the map and the poster that's the gear chart and the the nintendo power insert and the little notice that came about not leaving your game on pause because it'll destroy your tv and <laughs> you know the styrofoam spacer and the dust sleeve and it's a nintendo game so it should be the dust sleeve that has nintendo on it and you know on and on and on that's all stuff that you can add in to the collector's software to say yes i've got this i've got this add-in i've got this add-in i've got this add-in um or you can do things like enter in um custom fields so i have like nintendo ages rarity and atari ages rarity and all of the games and um you know like print run for games that actually have a, a stated print run so like all of the limited run games um you can upload your own custom art cover art so if there are games that have like cover art variants you can specify which exact version you've got uh, which i find very helpful when i'm working on like the complete wii u plus variant set i know that i've got the um the version of new super mario brothers and super luigi brothers that's the combo that's in the red box and i've got the combo that's in the green box and you know things like that or the the one that came from nintendo of america's reef and has the refurbished mark on it you can really tailor it and customize it to exactly what you need which i find is not present in any other software that i've tried Um, yeah yeah i like it so i would definitely and i think they have free trials as well so you can check it out i think the the mobile app you're limited to if you're the free trial is like up to x number of games before you have to pay for it and and the desktop might be the same way but um if you're Big into collecting. If you collect more than just uh, carts, um, then I think it's definitely worth uh, checking out and uh, getting into. Collectors.com with a Z. Yeah, it looks like the mobile version has a hundred games limit. Um, and I did ask earlier, so I didn't want to don't want to let this go. Um, you can you filter by like what type of filtering mm. options can you do in terms of 
like player count or genre is probably there. Those sorts of sorts of obvious things. But what sort of built in filters do they have? Yeah, they've got a, it, you can really filter down in a ton of ways. So you would filter on all of the obvious things, genre. You can filter on publisher, on developer, on series. You could filter down in terms of what are the complete games I have, what are the loose carts, loose games I have, things like that, obviously by system. But then they also have, um, you can choose like multiplayer options. So you can say, is it online multiplayer? Is it on, is it same screen multiplayer? Is it same screen co-op? Is it system link? And, and all of that, that those options are all expandable. So, you know, if, you know, two years down the road, they come out with some sort of like virtual reality multiplayer system link. Like you can just add that in and now boom, that's an option. Um, so it's very expandable and customizable. They also have a feature that shows like what devices work with it. So, you know, I can, I can filter it down and say, what are all of the zapper games? What are all of the Sega master system light phaser games? What are all of the gun con games? What are all the games that work with that crazy virtual reality IR thing for the, the <laughs> Nintendo, the, the U-verse or whatever the hell it was called. Um, yeah. And you can, yeah. And those are expandable too. So you can just list whatever devices you want and, and filter by that. So you can really slice and dice and cut things down and you, now you can only do those things in the desktop software. You can't do those in the mobile app and you can't do those on the, the cloud based on their website. Those are that functionality, that depth of functionality is limited to just the desktop software. Gotcha. It's pretty great. Um, I know, uh, like, so for, uh, People like me who aren't collectors but still have enough games that sometimes it's difficult to remember what you have, what you don't have. Um, the the app I use that I've I've really liked, I've tried quite a few. I used to do the, the spreadsheet thing as well, but I use an app called My Game Collection, um, and it's it looks nice, it's really nice, and the and one of the primary reasons that I've so you can add your own categories, tags, and filters and that sort of thing. Um, and what I, I think the one thing about this app that I think I'll never go to another app that doesn't have it is it can import, uh, how long to beat data. So if I want to know about how long it takes to beat a game, it pulls that information in. Um, and then I have a custom filter set up where for all the games that I, that are owned and unplayed, and it's sorted by how long to beat. So I can, if I, if I'm in the mood for a quick game or I've just, feeling depressed and I'm like, man, I, I need to feel like I can actually accomplish something. So I have a few hours here. Uh, what games are there? Um, and so I'm looking at mine right now and, and the games, what, what ends up happening is all of the games that sort of end up come like rising to the top slowly are games that I also don't really have any interest in playing. Uh, <laughs> like, like wind jammers. Um, I'm not sure I really want to play that. Uh, double dragon four. I uh, don't have any interest in playing that. And just on and on, there's just a bunch of a lot of limited run games, actually. I was are. just going to say, it sounds like you have a lot of limited run games you don't want to play. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight of the top eight are limited run games. It's, good. So, it's a good thing you stopped buying those. <laughs> it is. And that's just of the ones that are short enough to be at the top of this particular list. There's a lot more unplayed uh, games in there the, the bunkers in there uh the bunker <laughs> although that game looks kind of i'm interested in it and I'll, maybe i'll play that this weekend i don't know that, that was the one that they released alongside night trap right it was part of their like spooky spooky tuesday or whatever the hell it was when they uh, released that 
Yeah, possibly. Um, it is similar to Night Trap in that it's a it's a FMV game and it's supposed to be kind of spooky and horror-y, but I guess I didn't realize that they were sort of released in, in tandem at all. So, But yeah, yeah that think, would make sense if they were. I think they were released in the same day. Nice. And I, I guess I should mention, too, that this isn't like we're not this isn't a, a paid promo or anything. We're not sending you to an affiliate link or getting, getting paid. Like we don't run ads on, on this podcast. So this is just us talking about things that we like to use. So, you know, this isn't like, Oh yes, I love uh blue apron and you should love it too. Cause go to blue apron, MOU podcast and all that <laughs> crap. Maybe, maybe someday we'll, we'll, somebody will want to pay us for, some of the garbage we do, but I doubt it. I think you just invented a really cool way of getting away with actually promoting because had, had we been sponsored by blue Ra- blue apron, everything you just said would simultaneously be true and satisfy the contractual obligations of blue apron. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talk about something Ooh. completely unrelated for a while and say, just so you know, they're not, that particular company is not paying us. It's not as though, we are saying it's blue apron and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we really do get into the psychology of things. Now, <laughs> now our audience is going to be completely confused. They're not going to know what's real, what's fake. They, take the blue pill folks. <laughs> if they had any ideas of what was real and what was fake beforehand, uh, good on them. So they, they are probably as confused as they always will be. That's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. If they've made it with a, made it with us for uh, 21 episodes now, or I guess 20 and a half, really, we're only about yeah. halfway through this episode. So, um, you know, there's still time for them to be completely. Completely what? I'm not going to save you on this. Um, you, you, you know, <laughs> I, I, I got nothing. I have nothing. Uh, speaking I, of the opposite of, of nothing, uh, there's lots of stuff to talk about regarding Nintendo. Ooh, uh, yeah. There Good probably save. is a better. I, I could have done better, but yeah. Um, all right, so yeah, we have lots of Nintendo stuff to talk about. Um, and the first one is uh, Switch Online, uh, which everyone is talking about because it is finally here. Um, kind of, sort of. Uh, so the Nintendo Switch Online uh, fu- uh, uh, program was announced. Um, this is if for uh, people who. Um, awaited the Switch release uh, last year, we'll know that this was a functionality that was announced to actually be available. I want to say it was sort of summertime of 2017 or something like that, maybe into fall of 2017. Obviously, that came and went. Um, and finally, it's coming around It's in September of 2018. Um, it's $20 annually, and it is not quite at least from my perspective, what I was expecting, um, in some ways good, in some ways bad. Um, so the service does include, uh, I should probably talk a little bit about maybe what it includes and then talk about what, what I feel is sort of absent from it. Uh, so it does include finally cloud data, uh, save cloud, save data cloud backup, uh, which is, it's it, which is something people have been clamoring for for a long time. And even if not cloud backups, people want simply the ability to back up their saves in any way, even if it was physical media. But this is what we have, save data cloud backup finally. Um, and I didn't know if I mentioned the price earlier. It was all for just $20 um, sort of a year uh, for a single account. But uh, So there's also online play, uh, which we have some online play already. Uh, there was the Splatoon 2 um uh, Splatoon 2 has online play. 
Um, and so there's some uniqueness to this online play that I want to get back to. Uh, but then also there is uh, there's the Nintendo Switch online app that's included, which is sort of the way to communicate when doing online play. So I kind of bundle the app and the online play kind of in one feature. So cloud data saves and online play are the primary features here. Um, although the draw, I think for a lot of people will be the uh, the video games, uh, the, the back catalog that will be available at launch. So uh, one of the conspicuously missing aspects of this entire announcement is Virtual Console, which Virtual Console uh, is was sort of Nintendo's way to play classic games and download classic games online. Um, it's been announced that that's essentially ending it's not really going to be a thing anymore some people are quite disappointed about this this means that their entire digital library on the wii and previous gen previous consoles um is unplayable on on current consoles um but uh, at the same time this 20 dollars includes access to a bunch of classic video games classic nes games specifically 20 i believe there will be um with a handful of those available at launch um thoughts uh, Scott, because I have a few more, but I want to take a breather. Well, I, I think it's a great price. You know, I mean, this is basically all the same stuff that Nintendo or that Sony and Microsoft give gamers for three times the price. It's 60 bucks a year on those platforms, uh, for virtually all the same, the same functionality, online play, um, you know, clouds, cloud backups, cloud saves, some, some free game content, um, obviously I think this, even though it's, it's, it's 20 games, I think that they're, that they're releasing initially 10 of which have been announced so far. Um, even if it's just 20 games a year, this catalog is still, I would argue much more, much higher quality content than the stuff that's typically given away with games on gold and, and, uh, PlayStation plus, um, I, I, I'm torn though. I, I probably won't subscribe to it. Um, I, I don't even really, I don't subscribe to games. I haven't subscribed to Xbox gold since, um, I think my first 360 red ringed. Um, and I've subscribed to PlayStation plus, um, and I don't really know why, I guess. Um, <laughs> just it's, because it's just there and i do i do sometimes play the 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 playstation plus free games of the month uh a lot of times it's a game that i've had physically that i haven't opened and then it's it's released on playstation plus so i play it that way um and leave my copy sealed but i mean i mean maybe i will maybe i will subscribe to it just because the the nes games aren't just straight ports they're not like virtual console ports um and I say that as somebody who never even logged into the virtual console. So I don't know that I'm even being accurate when I say that I think the virtual console games were basically just ports and ROMs from the actual original game. But it sounds to me like these on the the Switch Online service is actually they've got things like online multiplayer built in. They've got you know some like time trialy stuff built in. They've got some functionality that has actually kind of taken and updated those games to be a little bit more um, user friendly in terms of tailoring them to the Switch. 
Yeah, and that's actually the feature that I am most excited about. So cloud saves, I'm okay. I'm kind of excited about, sure. Although I'm the type that once I finish a game, I'm or once I complete the story portion of a game, I'm never gonna go back to it. So as long as the cla- as long as the save file doesn't erase mid gameplay, then I don't care if it gets erased or not. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, but I am really excited about the online capabilities because what's the the most unique aspect of this is that um, it's introducing multiplayer to some. It, it's first of all, it's introducing multiplayer into some games that didn't originally have multiplayer, and I'm interested to know kind of how that's going to work out. But then also, it introduced the idea of what they call passing the controller. So you could play a single player game online with a friend. You know, the friend's watching you play it uh, as you're playing it, sort of thing. Um, but then at any time, you can sort of just hand over control to the other player and have them start taking on. So if there's a particularly tough boss that you suck at, but your friend's good at, go ahead and switch over the the control and then you know you you go on from there i think that's just a really really cool idea um it, it's really the only it, it's it's kind of getting me interested in online play and i think my uh, my interest in online play would start and stop there i don't think it would grow beyond that but it is really interesting to me and something i can totally see um being very very uh cool to do so i'm excited about that portion of it yeah it's yeah. it's a it, it's a good catalog too i mean it's it's a lot of iconic things super mario brothers 3 donkey kong zelda the original mario brothers super mario brothers balloon fight and a lot of some of the black box games uh ice climber things like that um and 10 that are going to be announced yet still to come so i'm sure there's going to be i'm sure there'll be more heavy hitters in 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 that lineup Mm -hmm. i think one thing that was kind of cool is that it's it's $20 a year, but they also have a family membership that allows you to have like eight different account holders that is um, 35 bucks a year. So if you have uh, several switches, you know, you have a couple of kids that that you share consoles with or or you have a couple of switches for the family or um, you you can actually save some money that way by just getting a, a family account, which is a neat idea. Yeah, very neat idea. Yeah, yeah. You know what else is a neat idea? Segways. Segways. Segways are a really neat idea. <laughs> Being able to charge your Switch while playing your Switch is a neat idea. And mm. I'm stunned that Nintendo didn't release a Switch charger stand before this. Finally, finally, they are releasing a stand that you can just put your switch in it props it up it charges it it protects you know with with the switches charging port being on the bottom of the the screen unit there's no real good way without a third party stand of some sort that holds it up off of the table that you're setting it on there hasn't been a real good way to charge the game screen while playing it but nintendo is solving that and they are making uh, releasing next in July, July thirteenth. They are releasing a new official st- charging stand for the Switch, and unlike most of the crap Nintendo releases for the Switch, this is actually pretty reasonably priced. Yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah, twenty bucks, uh, which shocks me. I figured this thing would be fifty bucks all day long. Yeah, I uh, I. I it looks. I love the form factor uh, based on the one image we have of it, which uh, kind of shows this sort of rocker-looking L-shaped thing that 
clips to the bottom of the switch. Uh, imagine these these small uh, uh, part of the L clipping to the bottom with the long part of the L sort of supporting the back. It almost looks like one of those rocker game chairs. I don't know if you got if if you mm-hmm. had those growing up, but that's kind of what it looks like. Um, it, we can't really see the back of it, so we don't know necessarily how it's propping itself. If it's uh, hopefully the actual kickstand portion of it's more durable than the included kickstand on the on the switch, or perhaps it's just sort of it's it hangs out just on a rocker maybe that's kind of what they're what they're doing here that would be kind of annoying though um so i it's it looks really cool it's it makes sense um the the only thing that that bothers me about it is i wish it would be i wish it was also a dock you know and i know that's and i know that's asking a lot even if it was a dock only to connect the um, HDMI, if I had an HDMI out or something like that, like even if it was only that and there was no USB port or anything like that, I, I would like to see that because right now from my, from my standpoint, this doesn't serve me. This doesn't really give me any, any, any use. I mean, Nintendo in some way does have a charging stand and that's essentially the dock itself. Uh, but I understand as you're, as you're traveling, all that kind of stuff, you, you need to recharge it. Um, however, how many play sessions are you going to play with two people where it's actually going to run the entire battery out? I can't imagine playing a game for three hours on a tiny screen next to someone because when you're next to someone, you've got to keep a certain distance away from the screen. So the screen's going to be very tiny. And I'm realizing I'm sounding like a super old man right now. So well, not, not for me, but I don't know that you need to be playing with someone to take advantage of this, though. I mean, the, the use case I thought of immediately was I'm on a flight. You know, I'm I'm flying from here to here to the the west coast which is longer than the switch battery will last um you can set it up on your prop it up right there on the on the tray after you are allowed to bring your tray tables back from the upright position <laughs> um and you'll plug it into the usb thing right on your on on the seat there and and play through without ever running your battery down assuming it's going to be usb chargeable um because right now the current switch doesn't have it's it's a it's a ac adapter right so is uh, is it going to even be able to plug into a, a usb charge usb port to charge do we know that isn't it uh i could have swore it was just usb c isn't it the bottom of the actual uh switch itself is but the part you plug into the wall or plug into wherever it is to actually charge it what's that going to look like is that a USB, uh, uh, does that, you oh, know what I mean? of, of the dock, you mean? Yeah, of well, this, of this charging stand. Of this charging stand, yeah, yeah, yeah. The part that actually plugs into the wall to charge. Yeah, but you could, you can always get like a, if it is, you can just pack a USB to AC adapter, you know? I mean, there's ways around that. I guess you're right. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking, um, I was thinking it will. Yeah, you're right. I was thinking uh, like it would be a a self a, a complete unit. You know what I mean? Like it would actually be the USB portion, USB C portion. Sorry, I just got distracted by a spider on my desk. Um, the USB C <laughs> portion would uh, would you know plug into the switch, of course. But then I was thinking the other end would actually be solid, tethered, would not be detachable sort of thing. But yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So uh, thank you for correcting me. On yeah. yeah. Get with the program here. Sure. Caleb J. Ross. Sure. Holy cow. Uh, you know what? It, it's, you're lucky you're not getting sued. <laughs> what What am I, Nintendo? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So Nintendo is being sued uh, by a company called Game Vice. Again, 
uh, over the Switch's design. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to muddy up this story too much because I feel like Scott, you'll have a little bit more to talk about. Um, but it's it's interesting. Um, and actually, before off mic, you you mentioned something that made this story a little bit more interesting than I thought it would be uh, when I first brought up this idea. I thought, oh, here's a story about laws and stuff. This is the kind of thing that Scott loves to talk about because he's <laughs> cool. Um, and uh, but then you actually brought up something that that I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So maybe I'll just kind of toss it over to you to to talk through that a little bit. Sure. So this is, it's a company, as you mentioned, called Game Vice that is suing Nintendo over the Switch's design. And specifically what they're claiming is a patent infringement, like so many of these cases are, uh, that Game Vice had a patent that effectively allowed them to attach two uh, controller units onto the top and bottom of your cell phone and basically play games using controllers with yourself utilizing your cell phone's screen. And you look at the the picture in the article and it, it, it really does look for all intents and purposes, it looks like a, a switch. You know, you've got effectively the Joy-Cons on the attaching to the side of your, your cell phone as the screen and, and that's the unit. Um, but what's interesting about this is usually when you see these lawsuits for patent infringement with uh, Nintendo or Sony, you know, when Sony got sued over the Rumble pack, uh, the Rumble functionality, and then took it out for a while, um, most of these types of lawsuits are not they're not perpetrated or filed by a company that's actually using it. It's filed by patent trolls and patent trolls are actually a, a big problem in patent law. What a patent troll is, is it's a company typically or an individual or group of individuals that all they do is they file patents and they file patents without ever having the intent of using the patent, but they are just intentionally trying to insert themselves into the monetary stream of other companies. So they file patents that are intentionally broad, intentionally vague, intentionally overreaching, and something that may be useful and may work its way into a product someday. Um, so that way they can extract royalty payments from a company like Nintendo. And that's typically what you see in these types of cases. So when you actually, when you, when you mentioned this article, I thought, oh, yep, this is, here's a Nintendo getting sued by another patent troll. But this is actually a company that has an actual product that's actually, uh, was actually released back in, I think, 2015. Um, supports Apple phones and Samsung phones and tablets and it, you know, it effectively looks exactly like the Switch, and the Switch was announced in 2016, a year after this de this this device from from Game Vice was actually released. Uh, so I think a lot of times when you have these these patent troll lawsuits, um, they're companies that can't really afford to do a whole lot of litigation, and they don't have a lot of skin in the game, and they're happy just extracting some sort of settlement from the larger company. But in this case, where it's a company that actually had a product, actually, I don't know if this is still on the market or not, but it will be interesting to see what comes of this. Because just looking at, you know, without ever, without having seen the patent, without having done research into what exactly their patent pertains to, just looking at their product, it, it looks like they've got to have a really, a pretty good case here. Yeah, when I was looking at this, my head 
kind of thought um and this is this is this is sort of where my uh where where I I get a little sort of back alley kind of sneaky about how to uh sue people and how you know like when you I don't know so the idea that that I, I I'm trying to imagine like maybe what went into the patent when Game Vice originally created their product right and if it if the words in their patent, and this is more of a question than sort of a, a, a statement, because obviously I'm I'm not the lawyer of the two of us. But if the word in the pat, if the words in the patent, if they said, you know, we're going to build, a, this is a gaming, this is a a set of controllers that snap to the side of a cell phone, or or maybe they just said cell phone, it snaps to the side of a cell phone to play and uh, to play ce- uh, games available on cell phones or something like that. Um, and then if that language specifically said, you know, cell phones and now Nintendo says, well, our patent specifically doesn't uh, include cell phones because the switch is not a cell phone. So uh, if I sort of go down that path, then I'm thinking, well, could that potentially be a reason why maybe Nintendo won't have voice uh, abilities built into the switch and they, why you have to use a standalone app? Because if the switch were to become voice capable and be able to communicate, you know, and send voices mm-hmm. over the switch itself... Now it actually falls into what Game Vice had created, but at the same time, Nintendo's so huge and powerful, they probably could just pay off Game Vice to get them to shut up. But at the same time, like that's the kind of weird angle that I'm thinking. Maybe that's why we don't have uh, built-in voice capabilities on the Switch. I, I don't know. And, and then I just kind of go down that rabbit hole, and I think everyone is out to get me. It's entirely possible. I I would tend to think that the fact that it also works with tablets mm-hmm. um the the game vice the de- de- product works with tablets as well as cell phones <laughs> makes me think that their patent probably is more broad i think in most cases when you're drafting a patent you don't want to you want to make it overly broad you want to make it you don't want to restrict it to just a very specific use case because then that's very easy for a competitor and mm-hmm. let alone you know a patent troll or something like that it's very easy for a competitor to p- design something that works just around that very narrow interpretation of your patent mm-hmm. and effectively release a competing product that doesn't violate your patent but is effectively the exact same thing so i would guess not having read the patent again that their patent has nothing to do with cell phones or makes no reference to cell phones I could be wrong on that. It could be a poorly drafted patent. Who knows? Mm-hmm. There are there are plenty of terrible attorneys out there. <laughs> well, and then doesn't that beg the question, though, what would allow two different video game consoles to exist, right? Like, I mean, how would the original NES have come about with the Sega Master, Master System? Or this, uh, was it just the Sega Master System? Was that around the same time as the NES? Um, yep, yep. So, like, how would you have two of those when they're essentially just consoles that play games on tvs right so in this case it's a it's just a a set of controllers that plays i I don't know i I guess this is where why you went to grad school and why you have a law degree because these types of questions i'm asking are probably incredibly dumb but you know it seems like that that there should only be one video game console right because once you file a patent that says this is a video game console and this is what it does um you know that's that's sort of the end of it but i don't know well the this all gets back to 
the fact that there are multiple ways to do things, right? So the the patent on the NES, there are multiple patents on the NES. One of them is a design patent. A design patent protects the look of the system. So the reason why the the Sega Master System doesn't look like the exactly like the NES or the Atari or whatever is because of design patents which protect the actual physical look of a thing. And then the the utility patent which actually protects the the device itself and the the technology within it is going to be that that stuff is pretty easy to to design around mm. um, because you you typically the the larger and more complex a thing is the more patents make up its 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 whole its whole being. I mean, I have the the court case up here, the filing for for Game Vice versus Nintendo, and they're actually alleging uh, a breach of I think sixteen different patents. Mm. So it, it's awful tough to get a patent for you know a battleship, but you could get a thousand patents for all the things that go into building the battleship, and then mm. not only does that protect your battleship right but it also protects you you are more likely to be able to control your ip if somebody else is or monetize your ip if somebody else needs to use your widget that went into your battleship so things like the the rumble functionality or the connecting of the controllers to the the side of the device Mm. yes so it's it's if you have one patent for the whole the whole device that you make that makes it easier to design around because you can design around one portion of it and almost invalidate the entire patent. Ah, gotcha. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You bring the you bring the brains to this thing. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, so, what do you say we talk about some not so Nintendo stuff? We we did we just did some lots of Nintendo stuff. What about not so Nintendo stuff? Yeah, how about uh, how about the anti Nintendo? How about uh, how about Electronic Arts? Oh, I was gonna say odd and tin, and but I didn't. Yeah, but I didn't though yeah, because no, that would have been stupid. So that would you are full on dad mode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So last last episode we got into earnings season a little bit and uh, talked about. Sony and Nintendo releasing their fiscal year earnings, and both of them had banner years. Well, uh, another company that had banner year was Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts had a record year in their uh, fiscal year 2018, uh, which was is what just closed for them. It's it's ironic because Sony and Nintendo just closed their fiscal year 2017, and uh, EA ahead of the curve here, I would say, <laughs> completing 2018 just half a year in advance. <laughs> but they they had record profits uh, of over a billion dollars. If you remember last episode, we mentioned Sony and Nintendo each posted profits of about 1.6 billion. Uh, EA had profits of 1.04 billion this past year, and. Now that well, that's all fine and good. One of the the key points and the key takeaways from their earnings report was 
they repeatedly hammered home on the fact that what drove them to their record profits this year were microtransactions and live services. And I mean, their, their CEO actually called a, a software as a service model, quote, the bedrock of our business. Um, yeah, that was uh, Blake Jorgensen, the CFO of EA. Uh, I think that just goes to show that, that despite the, um, despite the court cases about loot boxes and, and different countries that are making loot boxes illegal or deeming them gambling, I don't think that's going to do anything to stem the tide of uh, microtransactions becoming pervasive in uh, our industry. Yeah, I'm. I, that's what kind of what I was wondering with the whole, uh, uh, you know, how do we reconcile the fact that um, EA, when Star Wars Battlefront 2 was released and there was a big uproar around loot boxes, um, they kind of did a 180 on that. They went back and said, okay, we'll take those out. Of course, they said that we'll take those out for now, essentially. So knowing that they would go back to it, um, it makes me question, like, why they would even go back. If it was a PR move, they didn't really wait very long to throw that PR move in the toilet. Um so do they feel like there's been enough time passed? And I guess they're speaking to their investors on these calls, and this is specifically for you know investors. So the 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 article that you pulled this from is is essentially like sort of the truer face, I guess, behind what they what they would reveal to the public, maybe so to speak. I don't know. It just seems weird that they would be when that they would concede that yeah, loot boxes are bad, uh, and we apologize for putting him in there, but we're sorry, we're not sorry. Um, and it also speaks to the fact that. The while the while the there may have been uh, a vocal opposition to loot boxes, that was obviously the minority. Um, and that you know people like me and you don't like them. People like uh, uh, a lot of you know games journalists and stuff online don't like them, but apparently a lot of people do. And that's really ultimately who's going to steer how EA does business. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, gaming in general is is heading toward a software as a service type model. You know, you see the going back to Nintendo and the lack of a virtual console. Well, yes, there's not going to be a virtual console as we once knew it, where it was much more of a transactional model, right? It was a, you buy this game or you license rent this game effectively. And that was a transaction you've now effective you've purchased the right to use this widget for a given period of time uh, but as a software as a service model which you see in both nintendo's new platform with here's 20 games and you're going to have access to these as long as you have access to our subscription or it's the same way with playstation plus if you stop your playstation plus subscription you lose the access to all of the software that you've accumulated over the months and uh you know games with gold they're giving away you know launch exclusive launch game or exclusive first party games as as part of their games with gold or whatever it's called um if you have a, a a software as a service model is a much more lucrative model if you can scale it. Um, if you have a bunch of games that sell you know, all over the place, you have one game that sells 7 million copies and you have 
10 games that each sell 700,000 copies, you're better off having all of those games delivered to 6,000 or 6 million people who are all paying you a subscription rate. Even if the subscription rate is less than what the you would have made off of, you know, the the big game that you sold, you know, if you overall the pie gets bigger because you have more people shelling out more money than just the 700,000 you know, games sold that uh, were on the low end. That was a terrible job of describing that. <laughs> uh, and it's also more predictable, too. I mean, you mentioned scaling, but even if you can't scale it large, uh, it's it's predictable, you know, that and that keeps the accountants happy in terms of cash flow. You don't have to worry about necessarily big releases and the sort of spikes in revenue that those are going to generate. You more have to you just know that there's going to be a consistent stream of pretty good games and then you're you're set up so it makes sense honestly i just don't like it yeah i i mean i i think um i think big companies like ea and nintendo and microsoft and sony care less about the smoothing of the cash flows i think they're they're big enough that their accounting rules are going to you know smooth their their recognition of of earnings a lot anyway Mm. um and you just given the the capitalization and stuff that happens in in the back end i think where the cash flow comes into effect is it comes into play much more readily and much more importantly are in your your indie publishers and your small guys like um nis america or you know atlas things like that that don't have you know they're not sitting on mounds of money the way you know microsoft and and the apples of the world are yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah Uh. i think one other thing that that before we leave the ea uh, earnings report one other thing that i thought was interesting was they did note that they have a new battlefield coming that's going to be unveiled in june here so next month and if you read between the lines of the earnings report i think it's highly likely that this battlefield is going to be a um you know, a, a battle royal like game like PUBG or Fortnite. um blake jorgensen went out of his way to credit Fortnite. Uh, you know a game that's not an ea game it's a uh, direct competitor, you know, and um, he said Fortnite is bringing younger people into the marketplace and into first-person shooters in general, and I think that's good for the long-run health of the category and for all of us in the industry. Um, I'm not a Fortnite guy. Are you a Fortnite guy? I've played 37 seconds of it, uh, and Ooh. that's all. Nice. So no. I watched. I watched uh, Frantic. Josh at Frantic Society, he does the Frantic Thoughts podcast. Uh, I watched him play, I think, about 37 seconds of it on <laughs> uh, on the Cartridge Club charity stream that went uh, that happened, I think, back in February, and that was plenty for me. I knew that it was not going to be something that I would ever want to play. Yeah, but I think I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of truth in the sentiment that it is bringing more younger people into the marketplace. Um, and I think it's bringing people out of a, the younger crowd, like the, the Generation Z folks. I think it's bringing them out of the more mobile type game space and into potentially the console space, which is good for all of us. Because if if more of the young kids keep buying the Vidya games on the consoles like us old folks, then, uh, then that just means more Vidya games will keep being made on the consoles and 
pleasing us old folks. Well, Fortnite is also for free on on uh, PC and on smartphones, so it's you know it, it, I don't know which uh, which platform has the most highest user base. So it's uh yeah I don't know, but yeah Battlefront though I think that'll only be console and PC. Will that be PC? I don't know if EA does PC stuff, right? Still. Yeah, they do. They do PC. They have their their Origin platform, which That's is like right. their their version of Steam. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it would go away. I mean, I don't wish I I wish uh games as services would go away. I don't like it. Um but there are some things that um are sadly going away. Wait, crap. We already said that new story. Damn it. You'll have to edit that out. <laughs> I was going to talk about the <laughs> I was going to segue to the v- Vita stuff. No, we already segued that. We're like the Segway founder driving off the side of the cliff in his Segway. <laughs> no, what that wasn't the founder, was it? I think it was think... uh no, I think it was uh the guy like the CEO or someone who like bought oh, the like the... or something, yeah. Yeah, the VC guy that took it over or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Either yeah. way, someone died. It was all good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. <clears throat> Speaking of people going off the cliffs. <laughs> oh, so you're going to keep that in there then. All right. <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> Fine. I don't care. Do whatever you Pod, want. Podcast is going off the rails. Here. <laughs> um, okay. I thought you were really going to segue. Okay. I'll do nope, it. I, nope, I do I'm this. leaving it to Ooh. you. I'm, I'm not helping you with this. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. I don't like software as a service. I think it's terrible. But I also think it's worth talking about something that's not terrible at all. And that's Microsoft launching a disability-friendly Xbox controller. Um, I, uh, I I just love, love, love this concept. I've been really interested in how um, people with disabilities can use and, and engage with video games. Um, I've been following uh, Able Gamers, which I know they do a lot of charities and stuff that, that kind of revolve around getting uh, people with disabilities and kids with disabilities involved in gaming. Um, and I, I've been, I've watched uh, Ben Heck. Ben Heck has a great, uh, his whole, uh, the Ben Heck show on, on YouTube. And I think he's involved in a lot of maker communities and stuff like that. He's done a few custom controllers that um, are, are for people with disabilities. Um, there's, uh, there's half coordinated, a great, uh, a great username. Uh, he's a speedrunner who can't really use his right hand at all. Um, and watching him speedrun games is just incredible. So all, all of that's really just a setup. I'm kind of bearing the lead here um, in that Xbox has created a really, really, really cool controller specifically for people with disabilities. And, and and my initial reaction on this was that sounds great. That sounds great. Fantastic. But um, disabilities in and of themselves are, are so unique that uh, from a practical standpoint, it would be very difficult to mass produce a a controller that would be able to suit people with varying types of disabilities. Someone who, uh, you know, we, we cast the net of disabilities, but that could be anyone who can't use their hand at all to someone who doesn't have a hand, someone only has a few fingers, someone who can't use any of their arms, doesn't have their arms paralyzed from the neck down. I mean, that's a wide swath of, of, of that's a huge category. And to say that there is a disability uh, able friendly controller for that whole entire unique category would be crazy. But Xbox has this really cool, or Microsoft has this really cool approach to it um, that I'm excited to see kind of how it plays out. Um, so essentially, uh, what we're looking at is a, a a controller that kind of it maybe looks like about the size of sort of a, a large arcade stick, I guess, in terms of just footprint. Um, the picture makes it look like actually about as wide as an Xbox One S. 
um, or Xbox One, um, and probably about as tall, maybe two as well. So it's, it's a big, big controller. Um, but its primary features are two really large sort of trackpads, um, which I, I assume would be sort of uh, the analog controllers, essentially. Um, I'll write on the top, right on the front, on the top. Um, it's a flat top, so imagine, you know, uh, yeah, it's flat. So we've got the two uh, trackpads there. And then to the left, we have some buttons, a directional pad, that sort of thing. But the real standout feature, other than just the huge trackpads already, which which is, I think, just genius design, because that really does then accommodate people with um, minimal dexterity, uh, with, with no dexterity. Um, they can really do a lot with those trackpads. But then also on the back of the uh, controller is a series of 19, I believe, 19 uh, 3.5 millimeter ports uh, that are that you can then plug in a variety of um, various um, uh, various add-on devices, uh, bite switches, foot pedals, uh, touch-sensitive pads, just a lot of a variety of accessibility products can be plugged into this controller so that you can then now accommodate all of the various uh, various types of disabilities out there, which is just such a freaking cool idea. Um, and the price of the controller is not bad at all. I mean, it retails for 99 US. Um, that doesn't include, of course, all of the uh, uh, additional things that you would need to plug into the actual controller, um, all of the add-ons. But I don't know, just a really, really, really cool idea. Uh, I'm so 100% in favor of this thing. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a really, really cool design and a, a great, um, just a great effort. And it, reading through the article, it was clear that you know, Microsoft went about this the right way. They they went, and to your point, they're a whole host of, of disabilities, right? It's a gigantic catch-all term that can mean any number of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different things but they went out and they spoke to charities like cerebral palsy foundation able gamers special effects you know things to to get get buy-in on the front end and find out what sort of things would be helpful what sort of things um how can they get around some of of the problems that that folks who who have uh disabilities encounter when that that are hurdles to gaming um, so increasing accessibility, uh, to, to our industry and, and, you know, any, specifically anybody who, who is struggling with, you know, real life, um, making it easier for them to escape into a world where, um, they can be and, and do anything, uh, is I'm all for. Yeah. And I, th- I, the last thing I'll say on it too, is I think this is also another great, uh, a great testament to the need for easy modes on games. I, I like easy uh, modes on games. I've said that before. Um, I'll start a game, play an easy mode, no problem at all. And uh, I definitely don't, you know, intend to denigrate the, that people with disabilities can't play a game on anything but an easy mode. But if you imagine, uh, if you imagine you already have a, a, a disability that prevents you from playing the game, as I would say intended. Um, why not remove one more hurdle and make an easy mode on a game and allow that to also be the way in which you can play? So I just thought that was, you know, maybe I'm just sort of justifying myself and saying, see, I'm not uh, easy games aren't just for me. That they probably have an <laughs> applicable, they have they have a purpose elsewhere too. Um, so I almost kind of want to get one of these uh, and just use it myself. Um, I, I do a lot with um, ADA compliance and things like that in my day job, um, and so I'll often. Uh, 
use screen readers and things like that just to, you know, make sure I'm doing things the right way, make sure things are accessible, that sort of stuff. And uh, I kind of want to get one of these just, you know, to, to try it out, uh, just to see how it kind of works. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's cool. So it is that mm-hmm. it is that. Mm-hmm. Well, it what? is time. Speaking of cool things, it is time <laughs> To get into our main event. Main event. Main event. Main event. <laughs> yeah. Take that belly that, kill. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they got nothing on us. Oh, we, we haven't got harmony, though. You know? They got uh, that down. Yeah, I'm tone deaf as hell, so you'll never have it with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. We can, a guy can dream. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, we, we talked a little bit about this sprinkled throughout this episode this is probably the most digital friendly digital content friendly episode we've ever had um and don't don't get used to it folks i still (laughs) hate digital content um but that said if gaming has an all digital future and it undoubtedly does then reselling of digital games will have to become a thing and a new company called Robot Cash is exploring that opportunity and exploring um, a platform for digital distribution that is friendly to game sales and secondhand sell sales of your digital game library. I think this is uh, this is pretty interesting. It mm-hmm. it's you know I one of the things that I always harp on with digital platforms like steam you know we we had an episode uh last year where we talked about steam and the fact that you don't own anything you're you can't transfer ownership you can't even will your steam account to someone it is when you die it dies and a lot of the stuff on there will die well before you kick the bucket off of the shuffle off this mortal coil as you look <laughs> as you love to say mm-hmm. um but the the robot robot cash is uh, founded by Brian Fargo, who was the founder of uh, Interplay, the old game company, and In Exile. And I'm not too familiar with In Exile, but uh, I believe they made a couple of RPGs. They're in exile now, so you wouldn't have heard of them. Ooh, I see what you did. There. <laughs> oh, you're a, you are a clever one, Caleb Sometimes Ross. you are, man. The, the dad jokes are strong in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Marilyn may do football and crab cakes, but uh, we do digital games and uh, dad jokes. Mm-hmm. Two mm-hmm. of the best things in the world. <laughs> That's not oh, true. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, so t- talk, walk through kind of the particulars of what this service actually kind of is. What what What's with it? Yeah, so it, it's, it's actually, it was... F- Brian Fargo is, he's been um, actually big since he founded Interplay and Exile. Both of those happened quite a while back. So in the, in the recent, you know, recently he's been big into uh, blockchain and into the various applications of it outside of cryptocurrency. Um, And that really is what sort of allowed him to start thinking about a, a digital platform that allowed secondhand sales. Because one of the problems with secondhand sales of all digital content is that it's hard to do technically while keeping your um, your 
content owners, the, the actual IP owners, um, protected, right? It's, it's hard to, it's hard to prevent just widespread sharing of digital content if you don't have really, really tight, uh, um, DRM on stuff. So Fargo's idea was, why don't we use blockchain to kind of track this and tie this all together so that we can enable secondhand sales of just all digital content and make sure that all of this is tracked and make sure that, um, everybody is is on the up and up with the the actual IP holders. And so we've talked in the past about why IP holders, publishers, distributors, things like that are so pro digital distribution. And that's because in the physical game model, in the physical good model, right? It doesn't it's not just limited to the game world. It's really any secondhand sale by and large. Um, the original creator of that content doesn't profit at all if you go and you buy a new game from gamestop the publisher rate makes you know, a large chunk of cash off of that sale gamestop is probably only you know taking in five maybe ten percent of the of the sale price the rest is going upstream to the publisher and the distributor and the manufacturer when gamestop sells a used game all of that money goes to GameStop. Not a cent goes to the publisher. Not a cent goes to the distributor. Not a cent goes to the manufacturer. So um, any way where, it, in, in lieu of just cutting out secondhand sales entirely, which leaves a large chunk of the game-buying public out of the market because you are cutting out all of the people who have to subsidize their game purchasing habits, their game purchasing hobby, by selling or trading in their existing games, right? There is a, a large... The reason GameStop has made such a big business and has been such a, a, a juggernaut until you know recently when they've been struggling mightily um, is because of the fact that people can trade in and, and upgrade. And I mean, this is not, this is not rocket science. This is not new. Um, but the way robot cash is deciding to go about it is you can think of it like steam. So it's a digital platform where you would go and buy a game online, uh, completely digital, just like you would on steam for all intents and purposes. Think of the platform like steam. So the difference comes is now you want to sell that game that you have. You, you bought it, you played it. It can be the next day. It can be the next year. It can be you know, three years down the road. When you are tired of that game, you can list it up for sale. And currently the model says you can list it for sale for the retail price. Um, but I th I'm sure that'll, you know, that'll change and you can, can list it for sale for, for other prices, most likely. But when it sells the you as the gamer get 25% of the the price that you listed it for robot cash gets 5% and the publisher gets 70%. So the way that they can get buy in is in the fact that publishers are actually able to reap the benefits of the secondhand market for really the first time ever. So um you know, Lee, Lee Jacobson, the CEO of, of Robot Cash, he says, I suspect that this will play out in ways we can't fully appreciate yet, but do believe that new models will emerge. So really, this is this is getting at 
this is probably not the end goal. This is just we're we're throwing this out there as a as as a a talking point and really trying to get the discussion going forward on on what this digital secondhand sale model can even become. And then he goes on to say, it's important to remember that while reselling physical games is normal, it's a big concept to allow resale of digital PC games, and it requires the owners, i.e. the publishers, approval. We believe that has big potential to change the paradigm of digital ownership, end quote. And I mean, I think I I think he hits the nails right on the head. I think it, it, it would be tough for a new entrant in the digital marketplace space to carve out or overtake steam. Right. I think this is um, this is sort of a, a a test model. And I could see this if it takes off they've they've got a couple of publishers on board they've got 505 games they've got thq nordic they've got paradox on board um but i would see that if this takes off that steam or origin or you know maybe uh gog.com um maybe those those folks adopt this type of of secondhand practice as well and if they do uh i i think that's fantastic yeah, I think so too. My my big question is why wouldn't publishers just rely on Steam and get 100% of the of the cost instead of the 70% that they would get through this channel and so that make and and the sort of response there I think is that this new robot cash model allows it goes back to your earlier point about uh gamers subsidizing their own game buying habits. This gives gamers more money to potentially in turn buy more games from those particular publishers. So the publishers I think are hoping that some of that money comes back to them somehow eventually. Um, that's the, that's, that's really the only thing I can think of because otherwise why would, why wouldn't publishers say, no, let's just have go to steam and, and I'll get more money from, from that or, 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 or have their own platform, you know, or, or whatever it might be. So maybe they're just buying an audience and buying a group of, um, a group of consumers who now have income that they wouldn't have normally had. And we are, they already know they're part of the demographic. They are digital games buying demographics. So therefore it would be likely that they would be purchasing more and more games. Right. Yeah. I think that that hits the nail right on the head. I think you look at, you look at the steam marketplace and a lot of steam, a lot of the sales made on steam are made at deep, deep discounts. And I think they have to do that because of the fact that there is literally zero follow on value to the game. Right. So, I mean, that every game that I've ever purchased on Steam is either come as part of a humble bundle that I paid, you know, like $15 to charity for 30 games, or I bought it on a Steam sale for like 49 cents. Mm -hmm. Because, and it's purely because of the fact that there is. I view it as a rental. I view it purely as a rental. There's no way for me to monetize that content after I've you know, licensed it whatsoever. Um, so there, I, there's just nothing in the world that will make me pay full price for a game. That changes if I know that I can monetize it and get some follow-on value back out of it and extract some value, and then not only extract the value but build up a you know essentially a gift card balance to then use down the road where I get more of that impulse purchase at at full price. 
Um, and it seems like, at least from the initial articles that I've read on, on Robot Cash, that the they are really just trying to stick to a retail price model on on the assumption that gamers are going to effectively be getting discounts by way of the the resaleability and mm-hmm. working working together to do like some trading deals you know if you 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 can actually organize direct swaps so if you have a game that you bought and I have a game that I bought and I played it and you played yours and you decide hey you know I'd like to try the game I, I bought Far Cry and you bought uh you know, um Battlefront and and you decide you want to try Far Cry and I want to try Battlefront effectively I sell mine to you and you sell yours to me you get a 25% discount on Far Cry and I get a 25% discount on Battlefront and the publisher still gets 70% of each of those sales um, whereas if I decide, well, you know, I, I already bought Far Cry, I'm not going to buy Battlefront until it goes on sale, uh, then the publisher may get 80% of my purchase, but it might be, uh, I might buy it at half price, mm-hmm. um, whereby they're only getting 40%. Yeah, it's it's such a weird concept, because it's so hard for me to wrap my head around it, you know, it really is. Um I, the other thing is if if the publishers are controlling essentially you have, they have to have publishers approval uh the publishers are therefore able to control the market value of the games at a whim so they could say we want this particular game to be cheaper for this particular time period um which in a way is is sort of still putting a lot i don't know i feel like that element the fact that the publishers have to control and they essentially govern the price of of the of the game, there's an element in there somewhere that I don't think I can fully grab my, wrap my head around either. If the publishers can control price to that level, then there's got to be something. I don't know. There's something there I'm I'm not quite grasping, but I don't know that I ever will. Hmm. Well, I think I think part of the benefit of a model like this is that you protect the you protect the value of your games better. Um, you know, I think you see with the steam model, so many people wait for the, the deep discount sale to happen because they know it will happen. Right. It's, it's sort of the same, the same problem that like movie pass is instilling on the theater business, right? The, the very subscription to movie pass, which costs like nine bucks a month, um, is devaluing the theater experience. So movie people are are going to four, five, six movies a month for $9 or $10 and you you do that enough and you start to think of the value of going to the movie as a dollar, as $2 and then when when um, you go to try and sell someone a ticket at full price, they think, well, why would I ever want to do that? Because I, I, it, it should be a dollar. Um, it's the same sort of thing that you see with, uh, with YouTube content, right? The people, um, people are so used to getting video content for free that when they look at their, their pay TV bill, they think, God, this is, this is insane. Uh, you know, I get everything I want on YouTube for free. I get everything I want on Netflix for nine bucks. Um, why is why is my package with ESPN cost me you know a hundred? Hmm. I don't know, man. It's 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 hard. 
maybe I maybe I'm just tired. I don't know. That's probably it. <laughs> that's uh, probably that's probably, probably it. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think there are there are pros and cons, or, or pros and and maybe I don't know that these are cons, but uh, yeah, the pros are obviously it allows you to to recoup some of your purchase price for for your game purchases, your digital game purchases, um, and that it it can be a a pathway to allow other established marketplaces like Steam and Origin to follow suit. Some of the the things that I don't think are are fully fleshed out yet or fully solved problems is publishers are still still own the game in this model you're still just buying a revocable license so you're still going to have the thing you're still going to have the same issues that you have currently with um you know games just going going by the wayside and not being available any longer you're going to have um it doesn't solve the problem of archiving or future proofing content or, or preventing things from being delisted um, you know, like a, like a game on a shelf would. Um, but overall, I think this is, it's going to be interesting to watch. It's going to be a fun experiment, if nothing else. And uh, I, I really hope it goes well, because I think it, it does alleviate one of my big concerns with, uh, with digital um, transactions, rentals, not purchases. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the quote that you said uh, really, it, 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 it's the most positive part about this entire thing in, in my mind. I mean, you, you've laid out some very positive things. I think to my own personal situation, I'm still, it's still weird to me, but the idea that the, uh, the CEO, um, Lee Jacobson accepts that this is an experiment and accepts that th- th- I, I just love that sort of transparency where they're like, we, we're not going to claim to have the answers. We just think this is a cool idea and we want to see what happens with it. And I love that. I do love that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. So before we close, I have one more question for you, Caleb J. Ross. Mm, I can't wait to answer it. Yanni or Laurel? (laughs) It was Yanni for the longest time. Uh, Someone played it today and I heard Laurel. um, And uh, it kind of blew my mind when I heard Laurel. And he Uh, shared with me a New York York Times like app that sort of changes the frequency so that you could actually hear both. And it kind of shows you, you know, where in the spectrum you, you kind of are. It's really weird. What about you? I, I'm I am purely Laurel. I haven't heard Yanni <laughs> yet, and I think you're insane for thinking that uh, you did hear Yanni. You know what? You're insane. This <laughs> and is trying it. to steal my magic bag. <laughs> this podcast is done. It is done. I'm going to bed. <laughs> um, but if if going back to to. Uh, robot cash for a minute we will put a a a picture on the website of of their transaction system because they do have kind of a nice flow chart that shows you how their their model works uh wanted to mention that but other than that we are done thank you for surviving yet another episode of the masters of unlocking podcast we appreciate you taking some time to put us in your brain um putting up with us for another couple of hours here. And if you want to get a little bit more of Caleb's wisdom, Mm. Caleb's dad jokes, Mm -hmm. Caleb's uh, overall neatness, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can find him all over the internets as Caleb J. Ross. You can find him on the YouTube. 
He is uh, a fantastic YouTube subscribe. Go make sure you subscribe. Hit the little belly bell so that you can see all of his <laughs> awesome content. Um, absolutely great stuff. Aww. You can find him on Twitter at Caleb J. Ross, Instagram, and uh, you know his, his website, for those of you who still go to websites, CalebJRoss.com. And you can find me on the internet uh, pretty much everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, the WWWs as VG Collectaholic. Together, we are, of course, the Masters of Unlocking. You can find us at mastersofunlocking.com. That's where you can figure out how to subscribe. Uh, of course, you're listening to us, so just go ahead and subscribe in whatever podcastery, podcast collector, podcast aggregator of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MOU Podcast and check out our Instagram. That uh, will keep you in the loop as well and just keep you in touch with us. But for Mr. Caleb J. Ross, I am Scott VG Collectaholic. We will see you next time on episode 22 of the Masters of Unlocking. In the meantime, everybody, have a safe and wonderful Memorial Day weekend for those of you here in the States. We will see you in episode.